Good morning. Our first reading comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 18 and verses 1 to 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue, would try to convince Jews and Greeks. Amen. This is from the first book of Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. Divisions in the church. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. So I think Amy is going to bring us a poem now, which is a response to uh, the reading from 1 Corinthians. So Amy, over to you. Thank you. Chloe. The women rise during the final hymn and line up green teacups at the back. At the end of the service, the congregation will cluster round for tea and coffee, biscuits on a green plate squash for the children in bright plastic beakers. These women's names are on a rotor. Someone asked them once and they do their duty. The minister tells the congregation that there is a lack of faith. He hardly remembers the women's names, but they all know that someone should go out with a mug of Tetley's strong two sugars 15 minutes after the benediction so he can finish his conversation. He smiles at her, says thank you, forgets her face. Her name is Chloe. She has attended this church for five years. She worked in the civil service before she retired. No children, no husband. She has not joined a home group but she does the tea rotor every other Sunday. She wears a red fleece. Last year she had a breast cancer scare, but no one at church knows. Chloe is private, but observant. She sees the vicar's itchy feet, 
In six months, he will leave. The diaconate is fractious. No one raises a voice, but Chloe senses tension in the way a cup is taken, who is spoken to, who is not. Chloe finds the Bible difficult, difficult, and the hymns too fast to sing along to, but she does think, if someone cared to ask her, she does think that it isn't supposed to be like this. Two weeks later, Chloe leaves. No one knows why. Her name is crossed out on their tea rotor. People talk about it, but then they forget. The minister preaches about lost sheep. Chloe reads her Bible at home in peace. Thank you. Uh, yes, welcome. I'm so grateful to Amy for that reflection on Chloe and how she might have experienced church in our time rather than in Corinth, where we meet her first in Paul's letter. My key message for this morning, giving it away right at the start, is that people matter. Individuals, people with names, you, me, Chloe, we matter to each other and we matter to God. As a way into our reflection on scripture for this morning, I'd like to invite you to take a moment to think of those people, those individuals who have been particularly important to you in the story of your life and the story of your faith journey. They might be teachers, friends, family, parents or grandparents, people from church or from work. Take a moment and hold their names in your mind and give thanks for them and for the influence that they've had on you. We all of us have people we can give thanks for. Individuals who have mattered to us and shaped our lives. And of course, there will be those who we would rather forget. People who have made life difficult for us, who we've struggled to relate to and possibly struggled to forgive. Individuals are complex, we all are, but individuals matter. And what struck me quite forcefully as I was reading through the passages in preparation for this morning was the number of personal names mentioned in these two short passages. Here they are now, for better or for worse. Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Claudius, Chloe, who we heard from earlier, Apollos, Cephas, Crispus, Gaius, Stephanus. Ten names, two of them women, all of them individuals who, for better or worse, played their role in the drama of the early years of the church in Corinth. There can be a tendency for us to depersonalise the various characters we meet in the New Testament. Some of them we just ignore. I mean, when did you last hear someone talking about Crispus, Gaius and Stephanus? But others we mythologise. 
big characters such as Peter and Paul can become kind of stock characters, archetypes of idealized discipleship. We've heard it in a hundred sermons. Peter is the comedically inept failure who comes good in the end. And Paul is the classic villain turned hero who exercises superhuman strength of character in the face of overwhelming threat and opposition. And if we're not careful, we lose sight of the individuals, the people, the personalities behind the names on the page. So this morning, I want us to keep alert for the personal touch, for the way in which the people that these names speak of featured in the life of the early church, because in their significance, we will discover something of the significance of our own lives and the people that have played their part in our stories. So to Corinth. I went through Corinth when I was about 14, in a car driving from Athens, where my uncle lived, to the southern tip of the Peloponnese, where the family village was located. We stopped only for a few minutes at Corinth to have a look down the length of the Corinth Canal, this four mile cut through the isthmus linking the Aegean and Ionian seas. Plans for a canal date back to before the time of Jesus, but it wasn't actually constructed until 1893. So when Paul was staying in Corinth sometime in the mid 50s, goods needing to be taken from one side to the other had to be taken off ships and hauled across and then loaded back onto ships on the other side. There were even some ships that were designed so the whole ship could be hauled across without needing to be unloaded at all, pulled up a ramp on one side and let down a ramp into the sea on the other. All this made Corinth an incredibly wealthy city, as it could charge a tax for all the goods passing through. And at the time of Paul and the others mentioned in our readings this morning, Corinth was a bustling, multicultural and vibrant city with two ports and thriving industry. So when Paul gets there, he quickly teams up with a married couple, two Jewish Christians named Priscilla and Aquila. And between them, they exercise the original tent-making ministry by, quite literally, making tents. These days, we often use this phrase to describe people who have a self-supporting ministry, where they work a normal job for their money and then volunteer in the service of their church. And as churches are struggling financially, particularly in rural areas, this kind of ministry is becoming more and more common. Anyway, it has strong precedent. And Paul, Priscilla and Aquila founded the Christian congregation in Corinth. Then after a while, Paul eventually moved on and ended up in Ephesus, in what is now Western Turkey. And from Ephesus, he has a series of correspondences with the church in Corinth, writing possibly as many as five letters to them, although only two of these seem to have survived and made their way into our Bibles. We pick up the Corinthian correspondence, as it is known. We pick it up this morning in chapter one, straight after the initial greetings with which all ancient letters started. And it seems that what has prompted Paul to write is that word has come to him via Chloe and her friends that there are problems in Corinth with division in the church. The issue 
seems to have been about which strong character in the leadership people were following. Some people were following Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas or Peter, as he is perhaps better known to us. And some were just being annoyingly super spiritual and saying that they followed Christ and not any human being. Yeah, we've all met Christians like that. Anyway, Paul tells them not to be so obsessed with who baptised them, as if it matters who actually did the dunking. The important thing, Paul says, is whether they are living out the truth of their baptism in their daily lives. I'm sure we can all relate to this issue of hanging our faith on a particular person's ministry. After all, most of us have a soft spot in our memories for the minister who baptised us or nurtured us in our faith. Maybe you even gave thanks for them a few minutes ago. I know I did. And most of us prefer the preaching of one person over another. Are you a Rob Bell person or a Brian McLaren person? A Tom Wright person or a John Piper person? Are you a Simon person or a Dawn person? Or a Luke or Martin or Nigel person? Or are you, are you a Ruth person or even a Brian person? Or maybe a Barry person or a Howard Williams person? Can those who have come after ever measure up against the idealised and mythologised preachers of our memories. We all do this. And Paul points to a great danger in this factionalising and idolising of preachers. And the danger is this. The danger is confusing the message with the messenger. So Paul says in verse 18 that it is the message of the cross itself which is most important. Not the words that different preachers use to frame or communicate it. And there's an interesting ambiguity in the Greek here, which may or may not be deliberate. When Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's not clear whether he is referring to the message about the cross, in other words, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, or whether he is referring to the message of the cross, what the cross itself says to us about who God is and how God is known. I tend to think that it's this second option that makes most sense, because the message of the cross to each of us is that God speaks salvation not through the words of humans, but through decisive action in history, in the death of Jesus. If salvation were to be found in messages about the cross, that would make us mere spectators or consumers of that message. But if salvation is found in the message of the cross, the message that the cross itself speaks, then we are invited into that story as participants in what God is doing to turn the world upside down by realigning all our understandings of power and authority and suffering and death. 
The first century world was very familiar with the techniques of rhetoric and public speaking was regarded as something of an art form. They knew what it was to be consumers of messages. You could go into the forum in any Roman town, the equivalent of Speaker's Corner in London, and hear people talking eloquently about any kind of subject that you desired. But Paul wants to differentiate the word of salvation spoken by God in the events of the cross from the words of those who would merely speak about the cross. The crucifixion is not just another subject for public debate and rhetorical excellence. For Paul, it is the cross itself which speaks through the brute fact of its existence in history. And when it speaks, the cross cuts through the babbling words of well-intentioned preachers, proclaiming its own message of Christ crucified, of God on the cross, of the all-powerful becoming the utterly powerless. The message of the cross is an ugly message of suffering, a controversial message of cosmic disruption, and a dangerous message of political and social revolution. And there is nothing that can or should be done by preachers to sanitise or beautify the shock, the horror, the scandal, as Paul puts it, of the word of the cross. The communication of the power of divine love through the murderous and barbaric act of execution and crucifixion speaks directly to us of the radical lengths to which God is prepared to go to make God's own love for humans known. The cross speaks a message of the extent of God's love and this cuts through human words to send a message of forgiveness, acceptance and welcome direct from God's broken heart to ours. This is the message of salvation and it comes from God to me and from God to you. And so we're back at the personal touch. We're back at valuing each created person and the way in which the one who creates us values us. People matter. Individuals matter. Far more than messages and theologies and creeds. People matter. Chloe matters. You matter, and thank God, I matter. And we matter to each other, and we matter to God. This is the message of the cross, that God loves us, and God forgives us, and God welcomes us into the new and radically constituted kingdom of God, and there is no theology that can keep us apart from that. As we take our place in this kingdom, alongside all those others, named and unnamed, who hear and respond to the word of the cross, we play our part alongside them in the transformation of the world as the kingdom of God is made known on earth as it is in heaven. This is the message of the cross, and it is for each of us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Loving God, 
We thank you again for the opportunity to meet and discuss together while we are isolated. We pray that we may be, con be continuously growing to know and love you more and preparing to build your kingdom as a more inclusive society when we begin to ease restrictions. We pray for those who struggle to commute to work due to disability or illness. We pray for those who would like to spend more time with their family. And we pray for those who have better mental well-being when working from home. We're thankful for the technology in place in our lives that will make working from home easier. And we pray that employers will realise that these can be used effectively to allow those to continue working from home when restrictions are eased. Let us also remember those people who may struggle with technology and those who feel isolated at this time. We ask for your help in reminding us to be inclusive in our use of this technology. We pray that we are not ashamed to ask for help when we are struggling at this time. And we also pray that we may be effective in helping those who would appreciate it. Help us to show our faith and your love to other people and help us to discern what is needed at each time. We pray that our faith in you may be questioned and strengthened when we share with others. Also ask that you support those who are fasting at this time of Ramadan, that they may be grow growing closer to you and that communities may still come together during this time of separation. We're thankful for our own season of Easter and that we may always be encouraged by the promise of the cross and the resurrection. Amen. <laughs>